So thank you for your questions. And uh, we have seven today. The first is this one here on the screen. And that is that when a Christian differs on important matters, is it okay to question them and their salvation? Well, we saw last week in the next in the bit from the book of Acts that Paul questioned what some of the other Christians were saying and, in fact, came into deep conflict with them. In, in fact, it was with Peter, as we read in Galatians chapter 2. Um, there are, in terms of questioning a person's salvation, uh, there are many things that Christians can differ about that don't put us out of fellowship with them. Uh, we are a broad church, so to speak, and you see that around the world. But there are some things that are so central to what Christians believe and so central to the true Jesus that if another so-called Christian says something very different and believes something very different, I think that they know a different Jesus and therefore are not saved. For example, if someone says that Jesus is not God, he's just an amazing prophet or something, I say, no, that's clearly a different Jesus to the one we know in the Bible who actually walked and lived. And if someone says, look, I believe that Jesus is raised, he's risen in my heart, but not physically risen, I'd say, if he is not raised, then our faith is meaningless and our salvation is insecure. And so I would say that they've misunderstood completely what has happened on that first Easter and therefore their salvation is at risk. So I think it is okay for us in kindness and love to question others when they disagree on issues small and big but realising that it's the big ones that matter the most. Question two, when, if we challenge a Christian on an important view, then should we worry about offending them? I hope you don't think that you want to go around offending people just because it's good fun. Um, it's really good when we live at peace with each other. But there are times we need to be prepared to bring up tough issues like the ones I've talked about because it's a matter of life and death. And so it's right for us to disagree, even if it brings offence, if it is a central matter and we're concerned that the person is believing something about Jesus that is just patently not true. Question three, should we keep the law in the way it says in Acts 15.29? This is the last bit of the Jerusalem letter that we heard last week, where it says that, you should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Uh, like I mentioned last week, I think the point is that the church needs to try and live in harmony with believers who have a different cultural background. The context then was that there were Jews who, who grew up Jewish and then became followers of Jesus as the Messiah. And then there were pagans who grew up completely pagan, and then became followers of Jesus as the Christ. And now they are together. And if they're not careful, they will end up apart because they are in such different cultural worlds. And so the Jerusalem Council came together to say, how do we make sure we can be really as one? And the result was, hey, you pagans who have become Christ followers, can you live in such a way that will not cause offence and division within the church? I think the issues are different today, but the principle is the same. Uh, see, I don't think we need to avoid consuming blood, so you can have your black pudding if you like, uh, and other things like that. But it's an issue that we don't want to do things that will offend other Christians if it means that the unity will be harmed. And I think that's what that list of things was particularly about in that context. Uh, years ago, I went to a church that was uh, an Anglican church like ours where there would be a number of people who had been converted out of the Greek Orthodox Church. 
they and their families basically went along to church because they were Greeks and it was part of their culture, but they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And they learned who Christ was as they read the scriptures on the university campus and they became personal friends with Jesus and saved by his grace. And so church, when we gathered, was very unchurchy and it was done in such a way to try and help those people feel that they're in a very different place to where they grew up. Now, that was a sort of a cultural way, um, and we do it in different ways as well here. And it's, the principle is we want to show love to all believers so that there's nothing that's going to get in the way from us enjoying fellowship together. Question four, what's the difference between church and denomination? Well, a church is a gathering of people who meet to hear God's word and pray to him. So we are a church here, this gathering right now. We can also say that our church consists of everybody who is connected to Jamboree Anglican as their main place that they go to church. And so the Saturday night people, the Sunday morning people, the people who come from time to time and say, this is my church, uh, this is the church in Jamboree, the Anglican church in Jamboree. We also have this thing called the denomination, which is a name that describes like-minded churches. Sometimes the denomination is a bit more like a, an opt-in fellowship sort of thing. So, for example, you might sort of say that you're a, um, one of the Baptist Union or something like that, and there's a kind of a connection there of sorts. In the Anglican denomination, it's a very tight connection because, well, the Anglican Church Property Trust owns this building, and the archbishop has the right to decide who's going to be the bloke who runs it here. And so there's that real connection there. Now, that's a denomination. Is it a church? Well, sometimes people will say it is and it isn't. Um, We talk about the Anglican Church of Australia, which is the denomination and the whole shebang. Hopefully you'll see that there's a bit of... It's a bit loose as opposed to what's supposed to be called church and denomination, but hopefully that's not too confusing. The word church in the New Testament just means gathering, and so... That's why there's some diverse meanings about it. Question five, if God has everything planned, why do we pray? Because he tells us to. That's pretty simple, isn't it? You say, hang on a second, why do you tell us to pray if you've got everything planned? (laughs) Well, he says that he will use our prayers to achieve his outcomes that he has planned. Uh, How does that work? It's one of these quandrums. We can't get our heads around it, really, I I think. The more you try and get your head around it, the more you'll get confused. So don't get your head around it too much. Just trust that the Bible says God is fully sovereign and God wants us to pray. Likewise, God is fully sovereign and we need to make a choice. Both of those sit there happily on the pages of the Bible. And we say, hang on, if A equals B, then C equals the square root of something. It's like, no, don't worry about it. Trust both of those things are true. Because as you understand the mind of God, you can see that it actually works and it is actually right. Two to come. Uh, Is the rapture going to happen like the Left Behind books? Uh, I've not read the Left Behind books. I believe that it's a a novelisation. It's a fiction, a series of fiction books that try to imagine what it's like when a particular view of the end times happens. And that particular view of the end times is that of there is a rapture and all the believers in Christ will be gathered up to him and then there'll be a thousand-year period of, of where all sorts of things will happen. Uh, this book, and it became a movie, was all about imagining what that would be like with having a, a storyline of individuals who were there at the time and going through that trial and all of that sort of stuff. 
Uh, it's fiction, so I don't know if it's exactly that or what they've got out of the Bible and so on, so I can't fully answer that question. But I will say that you, you've probably picked this up from me already, and that is that I believe that we are in the millennium right now, uh, that the millennium is um, more than a thousand years. It's actually a, a thousand year period that's described in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it uses all sorts of numbers to mean all sorts of different things that basically just are picture language, because that's the apocalyptic style of the book of Revelation. So when it talks about a millennium, a thousand years, I think it's right for us to see that it's a long time and it's a set time. And if you see what's happening in the millennium, it describes perfectly what's happening now. Jesus has risen from the dead and now we're in this moment in time where we await his final return and the end of what we see. We're in that now. And so therefore I don't see that there's going to be a millennium after that. And so therefore I don't think it's going to be quite like the premise behind the Left Behind books. But like I've said to you before, there are millions of wonderful Bible-believing Christians who think there is going to be a literal 1,000-year period after the rapture, and uh, they might be right and I might be wrong. But what we do need to do is get ready for Jesus and tell everyone about his grace before he gets here. Finally, question seven, because God is outside of time, does this explain what happens from death to Christ's return? Well, it's true that for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. There's, there's something about his time that he is not locked in strictly in the same way that we are. But as he created the universe, he created linear time. Uh, there is a timeline, a, a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then from creation through to new creation, we have a period of time. It goes from one thing to another. Um, now, God will be outside of that and working in that. And what's more in the Bible, it's worth realising that this view of linear time is different to other religions. Other religions will have a cyclical view, a big cycle that sort of comes around and around and around, sort of like reincarnation and stuff. And others are really wobbly about time and they don't really talk about time at all. You just exist. Uh, the scriptures are very clear. There's a start and there's an end. So with all of this in mind, does this explain what happens between the time when you breathe your last breath as a friend of Jesus and you wait for the time that he comes to judge the living and the dead? Are you sort of, is your time a bit wobbly as well and does it go shorter or longer? I don't know. But what we do know is that when you are in that moment, you are in paradise, you are with Christ and it is better by far and it's going to be good. And so whether it takes a long time or it feels like a long time or not, you are safe in the arms of Jesus.